Uh, we're in Romans chapter 8, verses 18 through 30. Uh, we are in a series in Romans 8. This is the third week of the series. It's called Best Chapter Ever. And like I said last week, we titled it that because I get to make up the sermon series and titles around here, and it's my favorite chapters, okay? So uh, we're in verses 18 through 30, and we're talking about the topic this morning of wait for it, okay? Wait for it. That's our topic. We don't like to wait, right? Um, in our culture, we don't like to wait. And as believers in general, even, even as Christians, you don't get saved and all of a sudden like to wait. And so whether you're Christian or non-Christian this morning, none of us like to wait. So look at our, look at our culture. What, we've invented things to prevent us from having to wait. So we've got microwaves, right? We've got DVR so we can skip commercials. Sometimes we just skip that all together and we've got Netflix and things like that. And, and we've got all these ways to avoid waiting. We shop on the internet now so that we don't have to wait in lines, right? We do all these things to avoid waitings. And so my family, we're a big Disney family because, well, you know, we've got children ages one through six and we live in Orlando. So, so we like to go to Disney World. But the one thing about Disney World that I don't like, okay, no offense to those that work there, is waiting. And so they have these little things they've invented because, called fast passes, all right? And so they allow you, and all the parks around here have them, they allow you to, to skip the line. And so at Disney, you can get three fast passes in a day. And so for the Malone kids, that means when we go to Disney World, they get to ride three rides, okay? Uh, now, every now and then, if something's like a 20-minute wait or a 25-minute wait, we'll do that. But when I go by these things and I see these, you know, 240-minute wait, I'm like, what in the, I mean, you could like watch, I don't know, Gone with the Wind while you wait for some of these things, like on your phone or something. So I just have no interest in that. Now, there's one ride in particular that's had this really long ride. It's over at Animal Kingdom. It's in this, thing, it's in this, uh, this area. They call, it's made after a movie called Pandora. And I think that's the name of the movie, right? And there's this ride there called the Flight of Passage. And you get to ride some demon horse through the sky or something like that. I don't know exactly what, forget what they call these things. I call it a demon horse. I don't know. This really weird looking fake horse. And you get to, just, you get to ride it through the sky. It's, it's, it's a visual uh, kind of like simulated ride, right? 3D, all that kind of stuff. And I'd heard a lot about this thing. Every time before we went, we would find out there was like a two-hour, three-hour wait. Couldn't get fast passes for it, right? And so, um, you know, all the people that come in from other states, they come in, they get fast passes. But if you live here in Florida and you're not paying for a hotel, you don't get the fast pass. And so we'd say, sorry, kids, you know, maybe when you're 12, 13 years old, you'll get to ride this thing. And But one day, one day, I walked by and the ride had broken down. And so people were fleeing the ride, and we had this little app on our phone, and it said this, this ride should usually take, when it breaks down, about 30 or 45 minutes to fix. And I thought, well, I don't normally like to wait at all, but would I wait 30 to 45 minutes? And so I go jump in the line because everybody's leaving. And so I go get in the line, and, and sure enough, about 45 minutes goes by, and boom, it's fixed. And the line starts, I said, okay, okay, we got this. Well, I didn't realize once, I mean, even with no line, walking right on, it's like a 30-minute walk. Okay, just to get into the ride. So I'm like, what, where are we going, right? And so all together is like this roughly one hour. And, but I'd heard a lot about this ride. I have a friend uh, that lives in Tennessee that, that comes down a lot. He's been his vacations with his family and they go. And he had ridden this ride. He told me, Josh, this is the best ride. It's the best ride Disney's got. It's nothing like it. It's as close to flying as you'll ever experience. Man, there, it's worth the two or three hour wait at least one time just to experience. I'm like, you're crazy. Nothing's worth the two or three hour wait. Nothing is work, worth the two or three hour wait. And so, we, uh, we, so I'm sitting here. I'm thinking this must be something else, right? And so I get on the ride. 
and you have to go up, and I'm up in some stairs, and, you know, and you, they walk you up, and I don't know, I, you don't really know anything. It's, they, they conceal it very well. You're like, what is this going to be like, you know? And so, and you get on this little thing that looks like a motorcycle or something, a fake motorcycle. It's your demon horse, and you get on that thing, and they've got it all walled off, and all, you're just looking at, at a metal wall. And all this weird stuff happens. You've got your 3D glasses on. Then all of a sudden, that thing opens up. And I'll be doggone if you ain't in Pandora. I mean, and you're flying. And then I remember after this horse takes off, whatever it's called, I remember after about 30 seconds, I don't like to fly. Um, <laughs> and to be honest, it's a little too realistic for my taste. And so I'm kind of looking around to remind myself this is fake. And I look and I realize, like, I don't know, I'm a thousand feet in the air or something like that. And there, I feel like there's 10,000 people below me. And it's, I'm like, this is really weird. And then I look back, I'm like, oh, I'm back. I'm in Pandora again, right? And everything's great. And I got, to, I got off that ride, and I thought, this is what I thought. That was worth the wait. And now I go by that ride, and I see people wait two hours, and I go, totally worth it. At least one time. Totally worth the wait to do it one time. Now, the other thing, you wait two or three hours, and you get on Peter Pan or something like that, I pity you, okay? That ain't worth two or three-hour wait. But flight of passage was worth the wait. Some things in life are worth the wait. Some things in life are not worth the wait. And the big idea of today's text is, is the future of the believer is worth the wait. It does involve waiting, and the waiting is difficult. The, the waiting we're going to see involves some suffering. The waiting can be painful, but we're going to see in Romans chapter 8 today uh, that the Christian future is worth the wait. Look with me at Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 18. We're just going to kind of go through this passage chunk by chunk today, all the way through verse 30. Read with me verse 18. For I consider, the Apostle Paul says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Let's just pause there for a second. That's, that's, that's quite a quite a statement from the Apostle Paul. I consider that the sufferings of the present time are not worth comparing with our future glory. So Paul acknowledges something here, first of all, that this life does consist of suffering. But he says it's not worth comparing with the coming glory. In other words, it, the whole question, is it worth the wait, is not even worth asking. It's not even a question that should come to mind. Suffering here, that he, this term he uses, is a general term for all the sufferings we can encounter, right? So believers can encounter persecution. We talked about that a little bit last week. But we go through the suffering everybody else goes through too, right? We get sick. We die. We hurt, we get, we get sinned against, we get betrayed. All sorts of kinds of suffering, just the stuff of life, of living in a fallen world. He says all of that, whatever it is, whether it's persecution, losing your life, whether it's just the pain of, of sickness, whatever it is, it, none of the sufferings of this life are even worth comparing with the glory that is to come. The glory that is to come so surpasses. The life to come is so much better than the hardest parts of this life. Man, it's not even worth comparing now, when he says glory, the glory that is to come, that's our future with God. With, as the, we talked a little bit last week about the idea that believers in Christ, the New Testament teaches uh, that you get a, when you, one day in the future, you are going to get a, a, a transformed body that doesn't grow old, that doesn't get sick, that doesn't die, that doesn't sin. It's not even tempted to sin because sin's going to be removed from the picture. Suffering's going to be removed from the picture. So you're going to get a new body in a new heaven and a new earth that's not tainted by sin and the effects of sin to worship and be with God forever. That's what he's talking about here. And Paul is saying the suffering here, here man, pales. I mean, it's not even worth mentioning in comparison to what is to come. 
But don't miss the fact in verse 18 as he sets up this section of suffering now and glory later. There is suffering now and there is glory later. You're not going to get to heaven in this life. We get foretaste, right? We experience God's blessing in a myriad of ways. Life is great. Life is good. Good things happen, but so do hard, difficult, and painful things. We suffer. We get hurt. Life can be hard. And the point of this passage in a lot of ways is that the best is yet to come. And he don't mean in this life. He doesn't mean in this life. The best is yet to come. I've heard it said this way from someone before. This life is as close to heaven as an unbeliever will get. And as close to hell as a believer ever will. And that's true. This is a, listen, if you're a believer, this is as bad as it gets. The worst things in this life are as bad as it's going to ever get for you. But if you die in your sin, this life is as good as it gets. And so the future really matters. Look with me at verse 19. I'm going to read down through verse 22. Paul goes on to say, For the creation waits, and there's our key word, with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. That the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Okay. First thing we need to see about this waiting. Number one, creation is waiting. He tells us that. It's real simple. Outline's real simple today. Creation is waiting. He says creation waits with this eager longing. What are they waiting for? Paul says for believers to come into what God has in store for us. He's personifying creation here, right? He, he's speaking of creation like it has a personality to make a point. The revealing of the sons of God here is speaking to our glorification. What we just talked about. New heaven, new earth, new bodies, all that good stuff. That's the day when God gives us that. That's that glorification that, that he's pointing to. Um, the, the, um, the kind of the making known of our adoption. God has adopted us into his family. There's coming a day when the, all that that is, the, the true fulfillment that's going to be revealed. Uh, theologians talk about how we, the already not yet tension of the New Testament. We've received all this like it's already here because it's bound up in the promises of God. But there's some things we've yet to fully experience. We're kind of caught in this in-between times. But why does creation care about our future revealing? Because that's when creation gets made new too. They got skin in the game. Right? Creation's got skin in the game here. John Phillips says it this way. Uh, this passage is like creation is on its tiptoes, just waiting to see what God is going to do in us so that it too can experience a better future, right? New heaven, new earth, not contained in this arena of sin and, and difficulty. It's, it's like this. It's like your, your team is playing. I'll give you a sports analogy. Your team is playing uh, in the World Series. It's the bottom of the ninth. It's, it's three to two. There's runners on second and third. There's two, three balls, two strikes, two outs, right? Everything, man. And, and, and your team's got their best player up to bat and you're just... So I don't like baseball, Joshua. Okay, let me give you another sports analogy, right? I'm full of sports analogies. It's football, okay? And your team's on the goal line. There's one second left. The score is, is, is I don't know, you're down six. And, and you've got the ball on the goal line. You've got one more time to run a play. The whole stadium just kind of, they're on there. He says, that's what creation's doing. He says, creation's just looking, eager anticipation. This can't wait to see what and when God is going to do this. You see, in verse 20, He's explaining to us there that since the fall, creation has been under the curse. He says the creation was subjected to futilities. He's, he's talking about God subjecting it under the curse because of our sin. 
You may recall in Genesis 3, after sin entered the world, the curse came. And you end up with thorns and thistles. Man has to sweat and hurt to get fruit from the ground. The lion and the lamb no longer can lie down together. The world is different than when God created it. The creation is different. That word, futility, scholars say this word is is similar or even the direct equivalent to the Hebrew word that we see for vanity in Ecclesiastes. We studied Ecclesiastes some years ago and the key word in that book of the Old Testament is the word vanity or in some translations say meaninglessness. It's basically the idea of just being frustrated with things we encounter in this world uh, that sometimes feel empty but sometimes just feel confusing. The, The perplexity of living in a fallen world. He said the creation was subjected to this not willingly but because of him who subjected it but in hope there's a, there's a hope here verse 21 right God gave a promise in Genesis chapter 3 that there was going to be uh, the offspring of, of the woman was going to come and was going to crush the head of the serpent meaning all that the devil had, had done is going to be undone and that's prophesied all the way that's the hope he's referring to here so all this is tied Romans 8 back to Genesis 3 subjected in hope he says subjected in hope But the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Obtain the same freedom from sin, the same freedom from futility, the same freedom from corruption, the same freedom from the fallen nature we see around us that we are going to obtain. See, God's going to make a new heaven and a new earth. It's not going to have any of, of this. God has a plan for this world. It's not always going to be a place of suffering. There won't always be hurricanes and tornadoes and natural disasters. There won't always be crime or sin or suffering. Now scholars differ on whether God will transform the world as we see it or destroy it and create a new one. They differ on that. And there are passages that are, I mean, honestly hard to discern. Either way, the point is this. All things are going to be made new. However we get there, God's going to make all things new and there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth without all these effects. Creation is waiting for that. Let's go to verse 23 through verse 25. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons. So you see the word groan again, notice, and you see the word wait again. So we, we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So he defines what he means by this idea of adoption as sons. Verse 24, for in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. So the second thing we need to understand about this waiting is that believers are waiting. So creation is waiting, but believers in Christ Jesus are waiting. So the second section focuses on, if you're in Christ today, if you're a believer in Jesus, it focuses on your waiting. So we see the second groaning, right? There's three groanings in this passage. The first is creation groans. The second is believers groan. And we groan as we wait, just as creation groans as it waits. What are we waiting for? Those new bodies and that new heaven and new earth. The, the adoption as sons is the, here is, he's referring to as the consummation of that adoption. We're, we're adopted, but we have not received all the benefits yet of that adoption. They're ours, but yet we still suffer. We still hurt. We still sin. It, it's ours just as though we already had it because God's promises are that sure. But we wait. We wait for the complete fulfillment of those promises. But he says here we have the first fruits of the Holy Spirit. Meaning this, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit in your life is like a guarantee of your future inheritance. 
The presence of the Spirit of God in your life and the fruit he bears is like a guarantee. It's, it's letting you know there's something better to come. The, the presence of the Spirit in our lives proves what's coming and gives us a little bit of a foretaste of heaven. You're going to spend eternity with God. Well, God has taken up residence in your life here in this fallen world. But the best is yet to come. That's what Paul's pointing to. Notice what he says. We were saved, he says, in this hope. In other words, if we could see and taste this now, it would not be hope, right? If you have full possession, that's not hope. Hope means you're waiting on something. But remember, in the New Testament, hope is not a wish. Sometimes that's how we use it in our culture. We say, well, I hope this. And what we mean is, I'm not sure if it's going to happen or not, but I'm crossing my fingers. This isn't crossed fingers. In the New Testament, hope, the way the Apostle Paul and, other, and Peter and other people use it, it's confident expectation. It's a certainty that comes with confident expectation. It's a much stronger word than the way we tend to use it. And the key is that we are to wait with patience. Because we can't see it right now. That doesn't mean it's not real though. But we have to wait and, and we do so with patience. Without grumbling, without discouragement. But with patient expectation, looking in faith to God's promises. So don't miss this. Paul, the apostle, is saying that Christ followers will one day get what is promised. A new body that doesn't suffer, grow older, sin. We will live in a new place with no sin, no suffering, no shame. Imagine an incredible world with an incredible community of people with no sin or any of the consequences of sin present. And our little, our little minds, honestly, we can't handle it. We can't even fully understand that. So we go to leave, we, we, we warp heaven into something it's not. We think of this boring place with people sitting on clouds playing harps. And that is a far cry from what the New Testament paints a picture of. It's a glorious new heaven, new earth, vibrant community of people serving God, serving one another. We're worshiping God forever. It's a city but without sin. Uh, it, it's a place where you will live a vibrant life in the presence of God. And you'll have a body to enjoy that forever. And that's the icing on the cake because the real hope of heaven, the real hope of our inheritance is that we're with God in unhindered fellowship forever. So your church, your best life, your best day, your best moment is to come. And I mean, I don't care how good you think it is now. Maybe things are going great for you. Maybe things are wonderful. You love your job, you love your family, you love everything, and you haven't had like a real season of turmoil in a little, maybe you've been in a while, and things are going really great. Even then, I'm telling you, best is yet to come. And it's not coming in this life. But if things are difficult and painful right now, you really need to hear that. We need to be encouraged by what Romans 8 is saying this morning, that the best is yet to come. We're not gonna get the best in this life. It's gonna be filled with these trials while we eagerly wait for the future. You know, a lot of times, I'll hear people talk about their bucket list. I remember there was a movie that came back several years ago that got really people talking about this. These old guys that were going around, they had this list of things they want to do before they kick the bucket, right? And so sometimes people have a bucket list. Now, let me hear this, or let you hear me say this. I'm not disparaging that unless that's not done from faith. I think a lot of times people go, I've got this list of things that I want to do before I die, and they, they live in fear, almost like, uh, they, talk, they call it, um, in our culture today, they call it fear of missing out, FOMO. That's actually, we got a work name for everything now, condition for everything. And so just like this fear, I, I, oh man, I, I'm going to miss out on something. 
And we live life kind of like, well, man, if I, if, what if I never see the Grand Canyon? What if I never see the Eiffel Tower? What if I never see the pyramids in Egypt? What if I never experience this? And what if I never? So you go and you jump out of planes and you do all this stuff and you cross off the bucket list. Nothing wrong with doing some things to enjoy and celebrate life. But let me, let me say this. If you, as a believer in Christ, think that you got to go do a bunch of stuff because you're going to miss out, you don't have a clue what's coming. Because I'm telling you, there ain't a pyramid in this world, there ain't a canyon you can look at, and there ain't a plane you can jump out of that can give you an experience like what you're going to get when you look into the eyes of God. I mean, it, it blows all that out of the water. There's no place we can go, nothing we can see, nothing we can experience or have that can hold a candle to that. So, hey man, mark off your bucket list all you won't do, well, all you want, but don't do it from a place of faithlessness. Don't do it because you don't believe, because somehow you're pragmatically kind of living like this life is the end because it's not. And the new heaven and the new earth, you got eternity to explore it. and It's going to be way better than this one. So we wait. And it's worth the wait is the implication here from Paul. There's pain, there's hurt, there's suffering, there's a battle with sin, but, but what God has in store is worth the wait. It gets, but listen, it, it, the text gets better. We haven't even read my favorite part yet. Here's the thing. Some of us hear what we've looked at so far. We say, okay, creation's waiting for this. Believe, I'm in Christ. I'm waiting for this. But what about right now? What about the wait? What about the fact of the suffering now? What do we, how do we explain and deal with that? Well, look with me, verses 26 through verse 30, the rest of our text. Likewise, Paul says, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. It's the third groaning of the passage, right? It's the Spirit's groaning. Verse 27, and he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Third big idea, this third big section here is that God is working. Right? Creation's waiting. Believers are waiting. But folks, God's working. He's working in the midst of the waiting. Uh, this is a really rich passage of Scripture that we can't hardly, man, unpack all of it. Now, I want you to get a, a kind of an idea of what this is about. It proclaims to you and me that God is at work while we wait. As we suffer, as we hurt, God is working even in that. Nothing is in vain, in other words, for the believer. Nothing. God is at work, and his finished work in my life and in your life, if you're in Christ today, his finished work is a guarantee. It's a certainty. Let me show you, look, these, these encouragements that we need to know about God's working in our waiting, okay? These are kind of your, your applications today. The first one is, is that the Holy Spirit is working to help you. The Holy Spirit, see, God's working. The Holy Spirit, he has sent the Holy Spirit to work in your life and to help you. So you're not alone. You're not alone. God has given his spirit to help what? With our, with our weakness. With our weakness. We're weak. We struggle. We hurt. But God is strong. God is invincible. And he's put his invincible spirit in you to help you. And that's not your conscience. 
The Holy Spirit is not your conscience. He's not simply there to help you know right from wrong. Oh my goodness. Sometimes we, when we take the Holy Spirit and we simplify him there to just help you know right from wrong, you've taken him and stripped him of so much. You've given him something that you, you don't even need that. You were born with a conscience. Right? I've said this before, but unless you're like a serial killer, you know right from wrong for the most part, right? God's given you, he's made you in his image, so you kind of can sense right from wrong many times. Not, not saying that doesn't get stronger when the Holy Spirit comes, but he does so much more than that. He's here to help you live according to the will of God, to empower you. But get this, a key way that this text wants you to know that he helps is that he prays for you. Let me ask you this, have you ever not known how to pray? Have you ever hurt so bad that you couldn't find the words to say and it didn't even seem like it would make sense to say them? Have you ever felt so conflicted about a decision that, but you wanted to honor Jesus in the decision, but you didn't even know what to pray because you didn't even know what God's will was, and so all you could do was just kind of go, and just sigh? It just, it didn't even seem like your words would do justice to what you're praying about. If you've suffered much, you've been there. And Paul's point is, that in those moments, the Holy Spirit prays for you and he prays perfectly. We pray imperfectly. He prays perfectly. That's the third groaning in the text is the groaning of the Spirit. He intercedes or prays for us with groanings too deep for words. We groan in suffering and in anguish and in turmoil and the Spirit meets us there, groans with us and prays for us according to the will of God. In other words, there is no hurt that you can experience that the Spirit doesn't meet you in. There is no prayer that you need that the Spirit doesn't pray for you because he prays it perfectly in accordance with the will of God. Look at verse 27. The Father knows what the Spirit prays. He answers what the Spirit prays. Why? Because it's always according to the will of God because the Spirit is God, the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit always prays in line with the will of God and he's praying for God's ultimate purpose to be fulfilled in your life. And in our waiting, Paul says, we can know in our weakness that in our hurting, in our failure, here is the Holy Spirit here to help, praying perfectly for you and for me, knowing God's will for our life, praying God's will for our life. In other words, he's saying, believer, you have the ultimate prayer warrior. If nobody else prays for you today, the Holy Spirit does. If you forget to pray, I'm telling you the Holy Spirit does. But when you're in those moments when you just don't know what to pray, Paul's really speaking to that. And he's saying, man, Holy Spirit steps in. He fills the gap and he prays perfectly. God's working in the waiting. But another big idea of God's working here is that God's working all things for your good. Do you see that? The most famous verse in Romans 8, I guess. Romans 8, 28. One of the most famous verses in all the Bible. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. I mean, that's the ultimate Jesus juke verse. You know what a Jesus juke is? It's like when somebody says something and then you kind of just throw them a little scripture at them and it kind of throws them off because you usually kind of like maybe over-spiritualize something. Sometimes people do that with this verse, right? If you handle this verse wrongly, you can do some real damage. Take it and you rip it out of context, well, I had a horrible day today. Here's the horrible things that happened to me. And somebody comes along and says, well, all things are working together for good. You know, and, and you just want to like punch them in the face, right? You have no idea what my day was like. So I want to do like a, I don't know, Holy Spirit-filled dropkick, right? No, but seriously, you get, we get frustrated because people just take, and it's insensitive to what's going on. Now, but at this, so we can abuse this verse and take it out of context and make it sound like, well, all, all, all things are good. 
He didn't say all things are good. Right? He didn't say everything that happened. Horrible things happen to us. Horrible things happen to people. Horrible things happen to believers. So this verse can be taken out of context. It can be abused. But it is not to be ignored because it is one of the greatest verses in all of the scriptures. And it, it has a lot to speak to us in our suffering. We just need to be in a place where we'll hear it. Let me break the verse down. First of all, who's he talking to? This verse doesn't apply to every person on the planet. He says it's for those who love God. And sometimes people say, well, does that mean, uh, does that depends on how close I am? So what if I'm a Christian, and, but man, I, I, don't, I don't feel like I'm lo- I love God as much as this person does right now. Does that mean things aren't working together? No, 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 no. That's a descriptor for all believers. If you're a believer in Jesus, you have, you, you, you have repented of your sin and put your faith in Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit is going to live in your life. You are someone who loves God. We don't love him perfectly and we struggle and we fail, but you love God. So that's who he's talking to. He means believers, all believers. And then, well, what does he mean by all things? He says all things work together. Is that some things, most things, good things? Is there, a, is there a way that we can study the Greek word for all and it actually means something? No, 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 no. All means all. It means every, it means all things. Okay, so all things for the believer. We know that for those who love God, for the believers, all things, that means everything in my life works together for good. In other words, there is something going on. It's kind of in the passive here, but the implication is, is that God is at work behind the scenes. Working something, something's going on. God is at work taking all the things, everything in your life, and he's working it together for good. And in other words, there is an ultimate purpose being worked towards that's for your good that we may not fully understand now. Now, he says, he goes on to say, for those who are called according to his purpose. That's further showing that he's describing believers. We're those who love God and are called according to his purpose. So it's kind of sandwiched there, identifying who he's talking to. And it shows us that this is all this working is, is ultimately about God's purpose. Now, before I go further, let me explain to you what he is not saying. Sometimes that's just as important as understanding what he is saying. He does not say all things are good or pleasant. He doesn't say everything in your life that has happened is a good thing. No, as I said a minute ago, some things are horrendous and horrible. The key word is Purpose. God has a purpose in our life and the working of these things will ultimately not, the the bad things will not thwart the ultimate purpose and God somehow in his sovereignty, in his glory, in the midst of eternity will find a way to accomplish that purpose which is for his ultimate glory and our good. Here's the purpose, verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. That's the purpose. That's what things are working towards. God's ultimate purpose for the life of the believer, for my life, for your life, every believer's life, is that we be made like Jesus. That we be made holy. And that we be transformed. Ultimately, it's a trajectory that the Spirit has us on that we cannot fully reach in this life, right? We, get, we, we grow in godliness. We repent of sin. We, we grow. We mature. We find ourselves growing in godliness. But we don't fully come to Christ's likeness until eternity. And you don't mean made like Christ in the sense of you become God. The idea, though, is that you get radically transformed. You're going to get a glorified body, too. And it means sinlessness. It means you'll live perfectly in the will of God just as Jesus does. And Paul's point is that for the believer in Jesus, God is ultimately using everything in your life for your ultimate good in the end. 
that he will find a way to do that. And this will ultimately be your future Christ-likeness. God uses everything to refine us and to shape us. And sometimes things in this life that really the, the only good that comes from them may just be that ultimately somehow God uses it to strengthen our perseverance. Because any trial does that, the Bible tells us that. But the point is, is there's something that God's working for good in everything. Let me read to you this quote that will help you understand, I think. This is from um, a commentator named Douglas Moo. Dr. Moo writes this, The promise to us is that there is nothing in this world that is not intended by God to assist us on our earthly pilgrimage and to bring us safely and certainly to the glorious destination of that pilgrimage. Nothing. I shared before, um, uh, you know, uh, an, an illustration for this. I mean, about Randy Alcorn explains it like, ba- like, a ba- like his mom when she would bake a cake, right? And there would be all these ingredients on the counter, and you'd see eggs and flour and, you know, all, all the different things, whatever cake was being made. And many of those things, if you try them on their own, raw egg, for instance, right? Just go get you a mouthful of flour, whatever, right? Not good, right? But when they're mixed together, worked together, and then put in the in the end, but at, you know, to a five-year-old, it's very mysterious. It's like, what are the, you know, when we went to, um, when we went to Cuba back in June, the pastor there had asked uh, if I, if we could bring him some, some car parts, because he had a car that he was restoring over the course of like, I don't know, 15 or 20 years or something. And so I said, sure. So he had them shipped here, and I put them in my suitcase, and I, I took him some parts. And, uh, but, you know, I opened up to kind of get them in my suitcase. I'm looking at them. I'm like, I don't have a clue what this is, right? I'm like, what does this do, right? I don't know anything about cars, first of all. And, you, look, and, you know, if somebody just mailed you a bunch of car parts, and you, you know, all of a sudden, and you had all the things there to make a car laid out in your front yard, it would just look like chaos, right? You're like, what's this thing do? I don't know. You know, unless you're a mechanic, you just don't know. Until the car's assembled, Right? Same thing as like, until the cake is baked, we don't fully understand it. And if we can have little glimmers of that in this life, it, should it be too hard for us to just step back and say, if God is God, and if he's really all-knowing, and if he's really all-powerful, I mean, doesn't it make sense that he can comprehend and understand and do things that I can't even fully understand in this life? Couldn't that mean that there is a way in which that God can work ultimately for my good and for his glory, even in things that, man, that he can, he can, that he can use anything in the grand scheme of eternity. Of course it does. If that's not possible, how is God God? His point is, God's ultimate purpose can't be thwarted by these things. In fact, God's gonna find a way, find a way to ensure that. He's working in our waiting. There's nothing that's gonna be wasted. No suffering that will be wasted. No hurt. God will find a way to work it for our ultimate good. So we can rest. We can sleep, we can have faith, and we can have confidence because God is working in ways we can't even understand. But here's the other thing about God's work. God's working, and God will finish his work. He will finish what he has started. He's going to finish the work he has started in you, and that's what the last two verses are about. Scholars call this section, verses 29 and 30, the golden chain or the unbreakable chain of redemption. And the point is that God will finish what he starts, right? That you can't break this chain. Look at what he says. Those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Why? So that in order that he might, that Jesus might be the firstborn among many brothers. And he says in verse 30, and those whom he predestined, he called. Those whom he called, he justified. Those whom he justified, he glorified. You see all these key words there. 
And the word for in verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, connects us back to verse 28. How do we know God works all things for good? How do we, it's because he finishes what he starts and what he has started is making us like Jesus. This section has a five, five key words that show us God's redemptive plan in the life of the believer. Foreknew, predestined, called, justified, and glorified. Let's explain them. The word foreknew. Now, sometimes we look at that word and that means, well, that means God knows everything. It means so much more than that. That's not, that you have to understand. The Hebrew word here, it, it, it's the, the Greek word is tied to the Hebrew word, all right? It's not, it, notice, what does God foreknew? Those whom he foreknew. He foreknew people or a people. It's not things. So sometimes people say, oh, what he means here is God knew that I was going to do this, this, this. Well, of course he knew that, but he knew so much more than that. And all this rest of God's plan and what he's going to do is not being determined by him looking into the future and seeing you are going to be a swell person. No. Apart from Jesus, we're not swell people, okay? So he's talking about it like in the Old Testament, God foreknew Israel. It's his intimate covenantal knowledge. Of, of, uh, it's a personal, intimate knowledge. It carries the idea of the Old Testament idea of God's choice of his covenant people. So here's the idea he's saying here in the New Testament. That God set his eyes, his heart on you long before you were. Before you were created, before you were born, before you were saved, before you were alive, God chose you. If you're in Christ today, we can't escape. That's what that word means. Because the next word builds on it. He says, those whom he foreknew, he predestined. This means he foreordained foreordained what what's God foreordaining that you be like Jesus that you be like Jesus that you can be conformed in other words there's no one that's going to come to faith in Christ that's not going to ultimately be made like Christ because God has he is ensuring that you get there and he says those whom he predestined he called now what does that word mean does it mean like he can call but I cannot answer well that's not what this word means it's, a, it's an authoritative, effectual call. It, think of it less like mommy saying, it's dinner's coming and you've got to decide if you're going inside or not and think it more like the military draft and you've been drafted. That, it's an authoritative call. It's, a, it's an effectual call. And it happens, the New Testament tells us, it happens through the preaching of the gospel. Romans 1.6, Paul said this. He says, you, are, you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. 2 Thessalonians 2.14, the Apostle Paul says, To this he called you through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Right? Be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. It happens. So the gospel's preached. And if you got saved at some point, if you repented of your sin and believed in Christ, it's because you heard the gospel. No, no one experiences that call apart from hearing the gospel. I preach the gospel. We preach the gospel. We share the gospel. We talk about the gospel. People hear the gospel. And the spirit of God moves in their heart. And they repent and they believe the gospel. There's a lot of mystery there and a lot of things we don't understand. And we don't have to understand it all. We just have to trust that we preach the gospel, we have to repent and believe the gospel, but that God is the God of salvation, that he is sovereign over salvation. He says, those whom he called, he justified. Well, we spent a few weeks studying that back in the first five chapters of Romans. Justification, we said, means being declared righteous. So everybody that comes to faith in Christ, they, they are declared righteous because of Jesus' work. And then he says they're glorified. And you notice the past tense of that? You say, well, I've not been glorified yet. He says, they've all been glorified. It's because it's such a certainty that Paul can speak of it in the past tense. God has so decided, believer, that you're going to be glorified one day with Christ that he can just talk about it like it's already happened. 
That, that's what most commentators say is happening there. He wants us to understand the certainty of this. And there's a sense in which, because the Spirit of God, the seal of the Spirit of God has been placed in our life, that, that the foretaste is already there. And here's the big idea of this passage. God is not winging it. That's, if we could boil it down, that God is not winging anything. He's not just kind of, well, what's going to happen today? What am I going to do today? What, what in the world? You know, it's kind of like me going grocery shopping, right? I like to wing it, right? And so when I was single, especially, you know, I just go with the buggy and be like, what do I want today, right? You know, $250 later, you're broke and you're like, well, I, was, I shouldn't have went hungry and I should no, you, now we go with a plan, right? And you're like, well, we got to have, and you've got a list, and right? I mean, it's like, all, I don't know, Christy does that, but there's all kinds of magic that's got to go in that, right? And figuring all that out. God's not winging it. We wing stuff. God's not winging anything. He's not up there wondering what Joe's going to do today. I wonder if Sally will persevere through her trial and continue to believe in Jesus. I wonder. I, I hope, I hope she continues to follow. He's not doing that. He's not wringing his hands. God's not saying, I wonder if anybody's going to get saved today. He's sovereign. And his plan and his people can't be thwarted. We're not going to get into eternity. Listen, you're not going to get to heaven one day and hear God say, where's Bill? I mean, I had him when he was eight. What happened? Who lost Bill? Come here. I mean, that's not going to happen. That will not, I can promise you that won't happen. God is bigger than that. God is bigger than that. And that should comfort you. Salvation is a miracle of God. It's the plan of God. And if you are in Jesus, it was, it's not by accident. It's not by happenstance. You say, what does that mean about those who are not in Jesus? It means we need to preach the gospel to them because it's through gospel preaching that the call happens. Nobody gets saved apart from hearing the gospel. And when we preach the gospel and we share the gospel, people get saved. And there's some mystery beyond that. And that's okay. But God's not going to quit on you. He's not going to punt halfway. He's working and he's going to finish what he starts in your life. The chain of redemption in your life is unbreakable. And God, not your sin struggle or your pain or your suffering or the friend or ex that abandoned you or your sickness or your failures or anything else, God controls your future. Nothing else. And if you're a believer in Jesus, it's to be with him and like Christ. And that is food, and that is nourishment, and that is encouragement when we go through the trial, while we wait. Now go with me for a moment and step back. And I want you to think about it's the second day after Jesus was crucified. Jesus had been betrayed by Judas. He's been run through all these sham trials. They've beaten him, spit upon him, rejected him. He's been nailed to a cross, and he's died there. And when the Bible tells us that he's died for our sins, that, that, that he was forsaken, that we might be accepted, that he had endured the suffering that we deserve, that he was ultimately, that the, what he experienced physically was nothing like the ultimate of what was happening, which was bearing the wrath of God for our sin. And, and then he's been taken from the cross because he's dead now, and they've placed him in a tomb, and now it's the second day. And for those guys... The disciples who had dedicated the last three years of their life to following him, they're probably thinking, what's going on here? Is God done? Has God forgotten? 
Is Jesus not who he said he was? But then we see what we know. We celebrated every Easter. We talked about it this morning when we came in. He's risen from the dead, right? And, and victory over death for the justification of our sin. God, and here's, and here's, I want you to see something. God finishes what he starts, right? The plan wasn't just that Jesus would die. The plan was that Jesus would die and then be raised from the dead. And so we can look back at what Jesus went through and we can see that Jesus was crucified for our sins but Jesus was also raised from the dead. And that proves to us, yes, God finishes what he started. If he didn't forsake Jesus, he's not gonna forsake me. Right? If he raised, I'm in Christ, right? And he raised Jesus from the dead. And so my future is certain. God finishes what he starts. And let me tell you this, believer. Did God use Jesus' pain and his suffering for good? Well, sure he did. The most evil thing that's ever been done on planet Earth is the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And the greatest good in world history that ever will come came from it. And nobody has suffered more than the Son of God. We can't possibly understand what it's like to not sin, to spend eternity in a perfect relationship with your Father, Father God, step into a world that hates you, to live a sinless life, and but not only, not only be crucified and go through all that he went through physically from, humani- from a human perspective, but to suffer the wrath of God for sin you did not commit. Because we've all got sin. Sometimes we suffer for things we didn't do, but we've all got plenty of things we've done, right? No one has suffered more than Jesus. People in this room that have suffered more than me, there might be people that I've suffered more than them. On a human scale, that happens at various degrees, but nobody suffers more than Jesus. So that means no matter what you've been through or what you'll go through or what you're going through, God can identify with you. In that. Maybe today you're not a Christ follower and you need to hear that. Because the greatest suffering in human history was taken on by Jesus of Nazareth for you. He suffered so you can be offered salvation. He died for your sin. He rose again so you can be saved. No one has suffered more than him. And he suffered the ultimate for us so that in the end, ultimately, our suffering can make sense. And we don't, while we suffer now, we don't suffer the ultimate suffering. We don't have to pay for our sins. Jesus has done that. So let me say to you, our big takeaway today is we've got to wait for it with patience. Keep our eyes on Jesus, knowing what he's been through, knowing what he's done, that suffering in this life is not an option, but suffering in eternity and for eternity, that's optional. Because Jesus has suffered for our sins We don't have to suffer for our sins. We can rest in what Jesus has done and we can know too that God will work even in the midst of our suffering. He's ultimately gonna use it for our good and for his glory. Pray with me.